0: Edition of our women's pastor Miriam Walsh. I will say, "Good morning, church." How about that? And that was terrible. Y'all give her a much better reception than you give me. Let's try it again. You're on to? Good morning, church. Good morning. That's what I'm talking about. Well, we got a lot to cover this morning. Uh, of a great passage. It's rich and deep. And uh, so turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 2, uh, verses 10 through 18 in your Bibles. Get your notes out. Uh, It's a great, great passage. So let's get after it. You may remember this. Uh, Many of you may remember this. It happened recently, 2007. A man by the name of Wesley Autry was waiting for a subway in New York City. And there was a man, he had his two daughters with him, ages four and six. And while he was there, he noticed a man down from him a few yards named Cameron, who was having a seizure. And as Cameron had a seizure, a few seconds later, he stumbled from the platform and fell down on top of the subway track. So immediately Uh, Wesley jumped off the platform, went down in his hopes to get him and retrieve him and bring him back up on the platform. Uh, But as he was there and struggling with a man having a seizure, he quickly realized when he looked down the track and he saw a light coming down the tunnel that it was too late. So immediately he grabbed Cameron. They both went into what uh, subway workers call a Uh, to get the word right, a drainage trench, I think, where the water drains. There's actually uh, a hole between the two tracks. They laid down in that. Cameron covered him up, and to the screams of the people on the platform, the train went over both of them. And you can imagine, it is chaos at this moment. After the train passed... uh, Wesley got up and began helping Cameron up. They were alive, so there was great relief, but the train came so close to killing both of them that uh, Wesley had grease on his ball cap. He said he has kept it forever. Uh, After that, the recording of that, uh, Mr. Autry received international recognition, and he was nicknamed the Hero of Harlem, or... Subway hero and Mayor Bloomberg at the time presented him with a bronze medallion, the highest honor for courage and bravery. And he got a lot of free stuff and his daughter's got college scholarships and Disney World trips and the whole deal. And here's why I think why is we folk, we humans, we love heroes, do we not? We love champions, our The title could have been named Christ Our Hero or Christ Our Champion. It is named Christ Our Champion. And we love that. If you don't believe me, I'll just say Ricky Bobby. The first thing you think of is his profound words. If you ain't first, you're... Thank you very much. Uh, With my grandkids, every time they visit or every day they visit or multiple times during the day, I will look at them and say, "Paw Paw is the champion of the world. And I flex my muscles, and they're like, yeah! And they run around saying, "Papa's the champion of the world. And I'm like, you got it. Thank you very much. (laughs) There's something about heroes who without thought of their own well-being do something to help and save others. I think the thrill that we see or we feel when it comes to heroism, is really us living out this echo of the image of God in us. It's just in us, and here's why. Jesus Christ is the divine pattern, an original founder, original champion, or original hero of all true heroism because he lays down his life for the good of others, literally. So our text this morning, I love it. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18 will show us Christ, our champion or hero. And I hope it will affect us uh, greatly. One of my profs at Trinity Evangelical uh, Divinity School in Chicago says this, and it's in your notes. The writer of Hebrews depicts Jesus as our champion. Because he and only he is the one who leads God's people in a new exodus, delivering them from God and for God. So before we dig into our text, let me just remind us where we are in this profound, but at times difficult to read book. If you've been reading Hebrews, bruise, nod your head and say, yeah, it can be difficult to read, right? So here's the context. The writer of Hebrews is writing to Jews, as we've talked about in the previous few sermons, that are under distress, under persecution. Life is hard for them, and they need strong truth and strong encouragement to remain faithful, to be able to stand strong for Christ, to not neglect or take for granted, as Hebrews 2 3 says, such a great salvation. Because they're in great danger, as Monty said last week, of doing just that, of drifting away. And Monty used four other Ds. After they drift, what do they do? They get deceived. And once they get deceived, they get disinterested. And then they get defiant. And finally, but not shockingly, they go into deconstruction or denial of the great salvation that they have experienced. Folks, that is the path, and we're all vulnerable to that. Some of you have been there and are back. There are others of you, believe it or not, you're in grave danger right now going there, and our world is full of Christians who are deconstructing. So the writer of Hebrews' response to us from chapter 1 was, this is what you need to remember, that Jesus is superior over everything. He is greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels, who they thought high of, but too high off. He's greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system. And folks, he is the only one that at the present sits down at the right hand of the Father and will do so forever. So, the writer of Hebrews tells us, as Monty said last week, early on in chapter 2, so p- pay close attention to him. That's the, that's the answer. And this morning, the writer of Hebrews begins, if you would, to help us zoom in real close and begin to see very specifically Him. And in doing so, he tells us to pay close attention to two things the beauty of the Lord Jesus' incarnation and the very practical and relevant benefits. Of that incarnation. So let me read Hebrews 10, or Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. And as I do, I I don't know about you, but as I first read in Hebrews, I go, What in the world is he talking about? How in the world am I gonna preach that? So it's normal, okay? You're not the only one, but we get to unpack it this morning, which is the the nuggets of digging deep in God's word. So here we go, verse 10. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So let's unpack that. And we'll start first with the beauty of the incarnation, verse 10. Our direct context for this passage, I want to give us just a little more, goes back to verses five through nine of chapter two, which basically summarizes what God originally intended for all humans. And that is that we would have this magnificent position, if you would, of glory and honor under, under God's reigning authority. Matter of fact, in verses 2, 6 through 8, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 about how man is crowned with glory and honor. But if we stop there, we wouldn't be living in reality. And the writer of Hebrews does it, also lives in reality because he says this in the last part of verse 8, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. (laughs) At present we live in a broken and sinful world and man does not have the honor and glory that God attended in Genesis 3 before the fall. Can everybody say amen to that, right? That's reality. Instead of glory and honor forever, men and women, humans, suffer and die. That's this life, this side of eternity. So how do we get what is seemingly this hopeless state? How do we get out of this hopeless death sentence? How do we actually reach the destiny that Psalms 8 says will be true of us, to have honor and glory under the rule of God? Verse 9 points the way. But we do see him. (laughs) We do not see everything as humans, but we do see what? Him. See the theme, pay closer attention to who? Him. And then in verse 10, he launches into him, into the beauty of his incarnation and the very practical benefits of his incarnation, of him coming to earth to fulfill the destiny or the original intent of God's intent for man. So we good? So here's verse 10. It says, he first tells us that it was fitting or proper for God to perfect our founder. The synonym there, which is interchangeable, is hero our champion through suffer, suffering. That God the Father used the suffering of his beloved son so that his work could could come to perfection, it says. The word there is completion, and I'm going to talk about more about that later. Could come to completion through it. So the writer is telling us we see in the suffering and death of Christ an act that is 100% reflects the heart of God to a rebellious and sinful people. So it says, for the Father to take the one from whom... And by whom all things exist. And then in doing so, he takes that person, the Lord Jesus, and executes his eternal purpose and plan to complete or perfect his eternal goal. So I'm, I'm there and I'm like, okay, what is the eternal goal? What was God's purpose and plan? It tells us to bring many sons are many sons and daughters to glory, to return them to the glory they had lost in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. See what we're see what we're doing here. Let me take a minute to define founder for you. In the Greek, it means this: this is the definition: one who goes first, one who blazes a path where no one has gone before, one who causes something to begin. He is a pioneer, a synonym for founder, a hero, or as we've said this morning, a champion. Dr. Drew Scott defines it this way. It's in your notes. A founder designates a person who opened the way into a new area for others to follow. He founded the city in which they dwelt. He gave his name to the community. He fought its battles and secured the victory and then remained as their leader, remained as their hero, remained as their ruler, remained as the champion of his people. That's who the writer of Hebrews is talking about, the Lord Jesus. So Jesus, it says, as the eternal son becomes the ideal human and perfect man who leads his sons and daughters to glory. Another way to put it is our champion is this conquering king. Our champion is this hero that blazed the trail by his life, his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. And he blazed it right through the devil's world, right through the fall, right through the curse in Genesis 3, and through eternal judgment, all the way to God's very presence. Now, him doing that, if we just stopped right there, would it be pretty phenomenal. But here's the beauty of what verse 10 is saying. This is the beauty of the incarnation. He didn't blaze it alone. He brought us, those who've trusted Christ with him into the very presence of God so that you and I have access to him 24-7. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence in our champion, since we have confidence in our hero, to enter the holy places by our champion's blood, That would be the blood of Jesus. So in light of that, the dignity that was lost in Genesis 3 is now restored. Now, if you are following with me closely, some of you rightly so might be bothered by the word perfect. You might be asking yourself, I thought Jesus was already perfect. How could he have been made perfect? Anybody think that as we're reading that? we got one biblical scholar right here. Thank you very much. You're right to think that. It's a great question as we're reading the text. I actually thought the first thing, I said, hmm, that's interesting. I don't know if I've read it that close. So you're right in the sense, though, that Jesus is perfect. Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus is without sin. Hebrews 7.26 says Jesus is holy and innocent and unstained that he does not, the verse goes on to say, does not need to offer up sacrifices for himself. Why? Because he has never sinned. In verse 10, this word perfect has nothing to do with the son's sinless nature, but it has everything to do with the mission or the completion of the mission as, as the savior of the world. So for the son to be fit, as the high priest or fit high priest, there was this process that needed to happen. And therefore he had to fully and completely identify with humanity in a fallen and sinful world wherever human, every human suffers. So it is that our hero, our champion of our great salvation enters into the misery of our sin without participating in our sin. It was a divine necessity. That's why he came to earth in the incarnation. And once he finished it, it was completed or perfect of God's eternal goal and purpose and plan to bring many sons and daughters, you and I who've trusted Christ to glory. So that's what it means there. So we're good. No heresy this morning. All right. So not only is the incarnation beautiful, but I love these very practical benefits very relevant for us in terms of encouragement and in and, and, and light of our tendency and danger to drift, okay, to deconstruct, the writer gives us six gorgeous benefits of the incarnation which gives us these spiritual guts, does something inside of us that no matter what happens, this side of eternity we can stay strong and steady Following the Lord Jesus. So let's look at these six benefits. The first one, verses 11 through 13, is a consummation of a new family, of a new family. The result of Christ, our champion, bringing many sons and daughters to glory, is that now he has a unified family where he calls us his brothers and sisters. There's this unity, if you would, this solidarity that we half that would be impossible to have if he had not suffered by taking on human nature. And that suffering and him taking on human nature in that suffering now bonds us to him in such a way that he calls us siblings. The point is that all who believe in Christ for salvation have been united with Christ and united with other believers as family, as brothers and sisters. Now we've seen that in other New Testament passages, but the implication of that really should affect how you and I deal with each other, with other believers. Like there should be grace upon grace upon grace. We are family members, this commitment to one another, this unity with one another that we fight hard for. it. Yes, it doesn't mean we don't have conflict, but when we do, there's a real commitment to work through it because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's what I love. Did you notice the word? He is not ashamed. He's not going, oh, gosh, that's my brother over there. He's a red-headed stepchild. I don't really claim him publicly, but gosh, I'm oh, Moses. So some of you feel like that about your brothers and sisters. You're like, Lord, have mercy. They embarrass me. Now Jesus, he's not ashamed. In spite of us, he proudly says, That's my brother. That's my sister. To be the kin of the champion of the universe, what he does here is he restores the honor and status that was lost in Genesis 3. Jesus literally removes all the social distinctions that our world puts on us, our pride. Our weakness, our being poor, dumb, weak, lowly, all the names that you were called, I was called Howdy Doody, right? We all got those names. Our ethnicity. And he raises our worth because of that, and he includes us in his family. The writer of Hebrews now turns our attention quickly to verse 12 and 13. And he does so from the Old Testament. Two passages, Psalm chapter 22 and Isaiah 8, 8 and 17. I don't have time to dig into those in light of what's left, but I just want you to know what he does is what the writer of Hebrews does throughout the whole book of Hebrews. He uses Old Testament passages, particularly from the Psalms, to just make his point, right? Exclamation on his point. You can do a little study on your own. That's your homework this week. So, consummation of a new family secondly there's a destruction a benefit of the destruction of the power of death verse 14 so the writer tells us that what what we all know that you and I are merely made up of blood and flesh he tells us that we're mortal and we're subject to sickness and we're subject to death meaning the poor and rich both get sick the famous and unfamous die that death is no respecter of persons. I say that with a heavy heart in light of our church losing two folks in the last two weeks. Not just folks, but family, Sean and Sherry. But what should make us stop in this passage are the next words. He himself likewise partook of the same. That he himself also became mortal, if you would, flesh and blood. That Jesus took on the same human nature that you and I have, yet with one difference, he being without sin, the one who pre existed, put this in your mind, and created the world and who will rule on his throne forever, became mortal, flesh and blood. First John puts it this way, and the word or Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us. Incarnation is a very crucial doctrine to the Christian faith. Matter of fact, the apostle John in 1 John four says, every spirit or person that does not confess Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. Pretty straightforward. So here we have Jesus, who is a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man. And as a human, we know that he got tired, he got thirsty, he got hungry, and on the cross, we know he died, which is to be very much human. Like he experienced all that we experience this side of eternity. The Puritans, I love how they put it. They said that Jesus in his incarnation was the very, very man and the very, very God. And in His incarnation. What it did was it sort of set for us this, this great cosmic drama that stands at the very center of all of human history where deity takes on humanity in order to destroy the one who had power over death, to incapacitate to abolish the devil's power over death. So we know this. The scriptures tell us that God in his sovereignty rules over every breath we take and that you and I, very comforting, although it can be very fleeting in our own minds and hearts, it has been in mine that you and I will not die one second or one breath before he ordains your death physical death although you will enter into spiritual eternity with him we know that but here's what we also know and I'm going to read it just to be clear but the devil is the author of sin who has the power who has the power over sin and death came through sin, therefore he is the author of sin and death, and through the death of Jesus, Jesus took the power of the devil away forever. Here's how Paul puts it. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them. The devil thought he had won. If the devil knew that the death of Jesus was going to destroy the power of death, Yes, death still stings, and we weep and grieve heavily when any time someone dies that we know, but the ultimate sting of spending eternity outside of the presence of God is gone. If the devil knew all that was going to happen, he'd said, oh, don't put him on the cross. Paul says here, Jesus disarmed the devil. So it's a beautiful picture for you and I. It reconfirms and encourages us in the midst of life being hard and destroys the power of death. The next one, it just gets better. There's a liberation from the fear of death, verse 15. One writer I read this week said the cross is operation liberation. Every person, all day, they know they're going to die, okay, fears death. And you may say, Jeff, I don't fear death. You may know other people. We may hear them say they don't fear death or they act as if they don't fear death. I want to just tell you it's an act, right? It's an act. It's a complete theater here. Look, the crazy ways that you and I numb ourselves from the fear of death when we are alone in our beds and we look up at the ceiling, we all know at the end of the day we're going to die, right? But we try not to think about it. And some of us eat kale 40 times a week, right? (laughs) Jeff Bezos, the former owner uh, and founder of Amazon, he literally has given tens of millions of dollars to this lab in the U.S. so they can find a way for humans to live forever. He's going to (laughs) fail, right? He's saying, in a sense, I love my $200 billion worth life and I don't want it to end but it's going to end and the writer tells us this fear enslaves us because in the heart of every person when you die they wonder what will judgment be like so we try to justify how good we are or we can deny there is a hell or we can say things like all people go to heaven or the most depraved people in the history of the universe die. And when they die, people actually put hashtag RIP rest in peace when there will be no peace. Woody Allen put it this way. I am not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) Like, Get you, Woody. But, but John Owen clarifies for us. And as believers, we got to get this. This helps us live faithfully and chase hard after the things that matter. He says all mankind are condemned as soon as they are born. And life is simply a suspension of that execution. The fear of death, the writer says, is the work of the devil of hell. Because the more fear he creates, the more we embrace self-righteousness. It's look, it's a terrible way to die when you were wondering, was I good enough? you I know people who've died with that question in their mind, their eyes are big, their lips are shaken, and they can't talk because they're so weak, but they're wondering what's going to happen? It's a terrible way to pass from this world to the next. So death to the unbeliever is the end of everything held dear in this life with no guarantee of what lies ahead. It is not true for us. Because with Christ our champion, anticipation replaces fear for the believer. Now, what I'm saying to you, I'm not living in unreality. I don't want to die today. Anybody else want to die today? No. But when that final cancer diagnosis comes and they say, you have six months, When hospice comes in and you're on your deathbed, because it's going to happen to all of us. There is this real sense that as we chase hard after Christ, this robust devotional life, this serving in his body, as we grow and mature in Christ, there is maturity can be measured in a sense to this anticipation. To be able to say with Paul in Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is what? I'm not all the way there yet, but I'm getting closer. This real sense that today, all that I've dreamed of, I'm going to see the Lord Jesus and it's going to come true. Oh, man. You can't get there. You can't get there without the scriptures being embedded in your soul. I love church history. Man, just do some Googling on this one. How many have stared death in the face and were not afraid over church history? I love 1955. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake for preaching justification by faith alone. Latimer said this as they stood tied to two poles and flames coming up around them right before they breathe their last breath, their bodies are on fire and burning. And Latimer says, be of good cheer, Master Ridley. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a great way to go out? To look at your family, to look at your loved ones around your deathbed and said, be of good cheer. I'm about to pass into eternity. And there is for me a Savior that waits for me. So the liberation from the fear of death. And then there's the mediation from the God-man, verse 17a. Jesus, it says, is a merciful high priest because he has experienced our sorrows and suffering. It says very plainly, Jesus is a faithful high priest because in the midst of his suffering, he was faithful to God perfectly. He obeyed God perfectly. So we ask the question, what is a high priest? It's a very simple definition, but it's profound in terms of its implications. He is a mediator, a mediator between God and man, an intercessor, if you were, an umpire, if you're a baseball fan. So we know we can't go to God on our own because we're not God. God's holiness prevents that. But God can and did come to us, and he had to do it through someone that was both God and man. Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us, is the only person ever because he is the God-man who can lay one hand on God the Father and one hand on sinful man and be the mediator so that you and I can have access to him. And it represents both of us to each other. Paul makes it real clear. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So what does that do for us? Practically speaking, when someone says there are many ways to heaven, we say what? No, 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 no. And here's why. It clarifies our gospel conversations. And then fifthly, there's the expiation and propitiation of sin for his people, verse 17b. So the word there in verse 17 is propitiation, but most commentators say it's a, it's a dual concept here using two theological words, expiation and propitiation. Let me unpack this. So expiation is removing something, in this case our sins, the taking away of our guilt, if you would, by paying of a penalty, and then, propitiation, the word used here in the English transfer, is God's anger towards sin is satisfied and he is no longer angry with us. Do you know how your chasing after Christ would change dramatically if you could really believe in your hearts that God is no longer angry with you as a Christ follower, even as you sin? put it this way. The result of Christ's work of expiation, the removal of our sins, is propitiation. God's anger is turned away. Another way to say it, the ransom is paid, expiation, and the attitude or disposition of the one who receives the ransom is changed, propitiation. Now, some don't like this view of God to describe him as a God who is angry and wrathful towards sinful humans, but it's exactly what the scriptures teach. First Thessalonians, Paul writes, Paul says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath of God to come, and he has done so, and he did so through his incarnation. So if you know Christ, the slate is clean and God is no longer angry with you. Folks, that is good news for every day. And then lastly, adiation in temptation. I thought I made up a word. <laughs> I couldn't find a word that meant help or aid that went along with a shun. And I actually said that in the first service, and then I got a text. Did you know ideation is a real word? Boom, I am as smart as Webster, okay? <laughs> Someone sent me a text of definition from Webster. Uh, site online said Adiation, Verse 18. 16 and 18, but we're focused on 18. So this text focuses on Jesus' suffering through temptation. So when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was asking his father to allow this cup to pass from him, to, a, to a, not make him experience the wrath of God, the wrath of his own father, do you think he was suffering in that temptation? Yeah. Bleeding sweat with blood in it. So the one who faces temptation, if we're aware of it, is also another way to put it. We are suffering in that temptation. When you are tempted to sin, and you're aware of it. And the vast majority of Christians honestly aren't even aware they're being tempted. They're just going through life like zombies. But when you and I are convicted by the Spirit of God and temptation is right in front of you to respond to your spouse in a way that that is not honoring God, to seek revenge, to, to, to do something you know is a sin, do you feel the suffering aspect of that? <sighs> huh. It's hard. It feels so tempting. It's saying, come on, bite the apple. When that's happening, it's way better to place our help to get aid from someone who is obeyed perfectly in temptation and its suffering. If you want help in sexual temptation, and if Hugh Hefner was alive, would you go to Hugh Hefner? No, no, no. You go to someone who has been tempted and obeyed. Man, tell me how. So what Jesus says here, the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, we can get from the great theologian Val Kimmer in the movie Tombstone. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is your, finish it, Huckleberry. Huckleberry. Come on. I got you back. I'm the one. I'm the one you can come to. I can help you persevere in suffering and help you obey when it seems so tempting. John Owen put it this way, the great duty is to cry out to the Lord Jesus for help. I want you to try this. It is so true for me. I am experienced suffering and temptation. And when I don't do this, I tend to give in. And when I do do this, I am right in the middle of it. And I'm saying to my mind, this car is running crazy. And I want to run my truck right over it, right? Or whatever the situation is, I'm feeling it, boil, And I say, Lord Jesus, help me because this is Jeff and I am in trouble. I'm fixing to say something to the Jenna that is going to crush her soul. I feel all that, and I have thoughts. I'm saying, oh, Lord, help me. And all of us, look, I'm telling you, I am a shock. And I'm like, Lord, you provided. I was about to go crazy this week, crazy this week, because I had this mix-up on my prescription from $10 a month to $500 a month, and I was dealing with insurance and pharmacy. You know how doctors I said, Lord Jesus, you know I can't pay $500 a month. Will you help me be nice to these crazy people? <laughs> right? I'm, I'm really praying that as I'm on hold. And it was amazing. I was so nice. <laughs> Look, it was a miracle. I said, ma'am, thank you, thank you so much for your help. You've been, I mean, I'm like, boy, that worked better. Jesus was perfected or completed in his suffering. And folks, in that kind of suffering and temptation and us trusting in him is exactly how you and I are formed into the likeness of Christ. It's beautiful. So this morning I want to end with this. These are, these are great things. I, I want to end with a 36-second 30 second video, okay? If you put that picture up, let me explain the context a couple of weeks ago, Texas A&M last second kicked a field goal to beat Alabama. I love you Alabama fans, okay? I'm not trying to take a shot at you. This is not about football. But this is the kicker, Daniel, was Seth Small. And this is his family. So this is his father, his wife, his two sisters, and the lady sitting down is his mother. Now, we know he was the champion or hero of that game, was he not? And I want you to watch closely. There's this anticipation, will he be the hero or will he be the what? Goat. They're like, I want this to be true. I want it to be true so bad that he is the hero. And watch how they respond when he becomes the hero. When they know for sure that he is the champion. Watch how they respond. Not because they beat Alabama, although that was really pleasant. (laughs) Uh, I love that. When I saw it, I thought, when you and I, in the deepest depths of our heart, come to this conclusion that the Lord Jesus is better, that he is our hero, that he is our champion, and we know it more than just some intellectual consent. But there's this realness of chasing him year after year, opening his word. And something happens in us where these spiritual guts grow. That's our response. Based on your temperament, some of you fall in faith. I can't believe it's true for me. It's true. And look, I love the wife's response. She draws near to her hero. And God calls us to draw near. Come to me. I got you. I've done it all. And I did it all. The only way I could do it all is become like you. There's nothing you're experiencing that I haven't experienced. I'm your Huckleberry or champion. So take a few minutes and ask the question, how am I responding to our champion, Jesus Christ? me if you would Lord Jesus we come to you this morning and we acknowledge to you that life this side of heaven is difficult but you have made a way you've made a way through yourself a great mediator between god and man you're not angry with us you have not only forgiven our sins you satisfied the wrath of god that was due us you absorbed it yourself lord it's true help us as your people to dig into your word in such a way that your spirit would enlighten our souls and we would see that it's true And it would be so encouraging about how we're to live our days here before we live with you for eternity. Help it to affect us in every area where we live, work, and play. And we are grateful, grateful that you completed and accomplished your goal to bring many sons and daughters with you to glory. And everyone said, Amen.